grit for the day. Lived experience from influencers who overcome with CEO and founder Thomas Lee Johnson. Today's conversation is, is with Shonda and Shonda is going to give us grits <laughs> to keep pushing. Shonda has a girls raised in the South <laughs> uh, strength about her that makes her fierce from the start. She's going to share a marvelous piece of her story that begins in Winston-Salem, uh, North Carolina. And she says that uh, made her a conscious, aware, and have a high bias to action at an early age. Uh, she uses a rubric uh, for relationships where she asks herself, is this person a flower that I need to help grow and groom and water? Or is this person a weed that I need to remove from my life? This is how she keeps her fierce sense of purpose protected as well as her time. Shonda also makes sure, makes sure that the engagements and agreements in her life line up with her purpose. This is how she makes sure that she's using her time with wisdom to keep pushing in the right direction. She gives us in this conversation insight into one of her dear friends uh, and how she lived her life and what may have cost her some valuable time. Join us for Grits to Keep Pushing with Shonda. Hey, this is Thomas Lee Johnson and welcome to Grit for the Day. With me today is the Executive Director of Main Street Alliance and the Chief Caregiver, Shonda Causer. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Good to have you. All right. Shonda, you know, we have a mutual friend and he tells me that uh, you've, you've had a dynamic life. I would love to know what got you started, like, you know, from high school to college, what got you started thinking about the trajectory of the life you live? That's really interesting. And you started high school. I probably would start with what my mom describes me as a child that I would just always ask questions. We would be in the supermarket and I would be in a little, you know, carriage thing, the shopping cart. And yeah. uh, I would ask people, where are you from? What's your name? And I would say to old people, how old are you? Where's your mom? So I was always really inquisitive. Yes. Just naturally. Mm -hmm. And I think my first job, like where I got some money, was working for my grandmother. She was cleaning uh, these... Uh, corporate offices. She had right. a cleaning crew, mostly my uncles and aunts and just a couple of folks. And then me, I was 12. And so I'm doing the same job as everyone else. And I noticed I'm getting a fraction of what they're getting paid. What? <laughs> and so I was like, hey, if I'm doing the same work, I should get equal pay. So, you know, I had to run an action on my grandmother. And I said, I don't want to do this work because when I got my check, it didn't look like everybody else. And she said, hey, you're not even supposed to be here. I'm babysitting you. This is not, you know, a job. So, you know, I quit. And I, went, 
I just had to sit in my grandma's house and wait for my mom. And I, you know, I just like, I just had this like natural, like, uh, inclination of justice, like what is, yes. you know, like what is right. And right. so that set me on the path, you know, I, um, my, I, I you know, I, or I organized early, uh, in high school, I was on a history club because that was dope. Yes, and, uh, is dope. but I was the only black person or even person of any color on the history club. And every year I got sick of, you know, uh, slavery, Martin Luther King Jr. You know, with slavery, Abraham Lincoln, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. I just like, oh gosh, I got to do something different because I just seen Malcolm X, right? Yes. Twice. That long movie. I saw it twice in the theaters. And uh, I asked if I could take over uh, Black History Month. And they were, you know, I, the teacher at the time, he was probably 24. It was probably his first time teaching. He didn't care. He was thinking probably what is she going to do? Sure. Go ahead and do that. So I brought the Nation of Islam to this like school. I was going to school. About that time, I had moved to public school. So Carver High School in Winston-Salem. Yes. At that time was where more affluent black black kids were. You know, they had the BMWs, you know. Um, and then you had the rural kind of farming white kids who would come in, in the class. Right. So I bring in this nation of Islam to this this like hotbed ready to burst anyway. <laughs> and, and they said, you know, black people created air. Black people created everything. And I'm up in front just clapping. And uh, so that... That didn't go over too well with most half of the audience. And so <laughs> the end of the week, there was like uh, some white kids in trucks with their rebel flags going up and down and saying the N-word. And they pull into the parking lot and just boom, race ride. Mm. All of this is going on. My mom is not aware of any of this. She actually didn't tell me she knew about this. She heard about this story uh, about 10 years ago. That happened in 1993. My mom had just <laughs> found out from another person in Charlotte, she said, did you know about this race riot? And I was like, yes, when I I, I brought the Nation of Islam to bring it to <laughs> So like, it doesn't start in high school, it doesn't start in college for me, it's like this journey of like, I wanna make sure, I don't know if it's natural just to cause friction or attention to like a problem, but that just seemed like easy for me. Yes. So with all that being said, I went to school for accounting. <laughs> So, <laughs> okay, okay, that that makes perfect sense. I wanted to be a photographer. My mom says you should try to make some money in your life, and I, numbers were pretty easy with for me. But while I was in college, I got involved with um, Ace Project Rhode Island, and then um, this group called Youth in Action. So Ace Project Rhode Island was an extension because my uncle became positive of HIV in 1991. Mm. He's still alive. Um, he's one of oh survivors God. of that. Um, but it's just always been like a way to serve and give yeah. back. And while I was working for Youth in Action, which was a group um, to organize first generation students. So folks coming from the Dominican Republic, uh, uh, Cape Verde, um, parts of West Africa, uh, and helping them get into college. And so I was probably about three or four years older than most of them, but I felt like I was so senior. Yes. And I met this guy named Angel Tavares. He was running for Congress. And his pitch was from Head Start to Harvard. And I was like, wow, that's really impressive. Yeah. Um, I, want, I, want my, I want the kids I'm working with to have that journey too. Right. Um, so he came and did a couple of talks um, with, the, with the youth and they were really impressed and excited. And um, he said, hey, um, do you want to come and work on my campaign for Congress? And, you know, TJ, I never thought about doing anything like that. Like yeah. working, not, like what, what is that? What do you, you know? 
I still needed to go back and watch how a bill became a law, you know, the little commercial, but I was just like, <laughs> all right, I'll go and, and do this. Yeah. Uh, so I go off on this journey just by happenstance, just by like, just doing social justice work. So mm -hmm. it's kind of like being the forest, the forest Gump, if you will, of right. these like opportunities that led me on the path of doing congressional campaign work. Yes. Uh, that sucked. I didn't like that. You didn't My like last, it. Huh? What about it didn't you like? Well, I mean, I, I, okay, so that's a good question. I think I didn't like the overt and covert racism that showed up. You know, you, uh, they sent me off to uh, New Hampshire and like this idea of New England being like this liberal haven. And I think it's only that way because a lot of folks of color aren't there. Mm -hmm. uh, I was doing this incredible like work, you know, being around like the Gore Lieberman team coming in and out, you know, and just, just really excited. And uh, right. I already knew that I was, you know, kind of a minority in the group, but it was just the always just being reminded. I had a, but I got a Mitsubishi Eclipse when I graduated. You remember the, with the spoilers? You yeah, know? with the Mitsubishi, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was, it was fire. So I had that, I was like whipping it up uh, to go do this job. My family's all proud. And uh, one night I was letting the volunteers leave early, early, it was like eight o'clock. And they were like, oh, do you have to get home to your kids? And I'm like, I got this two seater car. I just graduated. <laughs> You think they were in the car all day? Like, I was just so confused. Like, <laughs> I was like, no, I got I to gotta get back, you know, to my life and take a break. And so that, that tripped me up a little bit, I think, more than it needed to do, because I was just excited to be on this learning journey, this impressive, you know, job, you know, that I had amongst the Ivy Leaguers. I wasn't an Ivy Leaguer, um, but I, I didn't think that they were, they were doing it a community service uh, for me. So that... That set me back a little bit. It threw me off game because that was the first time I realized, and this is this is late 90s, it's like 1999, uh, that some people might have watched Good Times and San Francisco, all the comedy shows that I liked growing up and thought yeah, yeah. they were a true documentary <laughs> to black life because everyone was probably about 10 to 20 years my senior at that time. And so uh, I said, like, let me get out of this. Let me get out of this mess. and. Uh, let me try something different. So I ended up in Washington, DC, which was crazy to think you wanted to leave the political campaigns and then move to the heart, the belly. Yeah, of the yeah. um, and so I just got this job at this like Tony, um, I won't say the name of the school, but it's a really exclusive school. They uh, um, educate presidents, diplomats. Um, it's yeah, I, know, a, I know the name of the school. I bet you do. Yeah. Um, so we, I, I end up working there. Uh, I'm doing some alumni relations and multiculturalism. You know how we call it D not D DI now. Back yeah. in the late '90s, it was still called multiculturalism. Right. I did multiculturalism in the workplace, um, and then I was planning all these events. And I and I had five interns, um, students from ninth grade to twelfth grade, and it was incredible. Like I just graduated college, worked in a congressional campaign, and now I'm at this school. And these kids have access to power. Like, yes. like they have access to power, resources. They would read a book and then invite the author in to discuss the book. <laughs> you know that? I mean, I gotta, like, I'm already behind them. This is a 10th grader. <laughs> <laughs> 
it was wild. It just opened my eyes, but it was just like just justice. I was just like, this is unfair. Because I was I was also living in a really expensive studio apartment because they told me that was a good place to live, which was it. It was expensive. Yeah. And there was a lot of kids in the building, you know, who worked for the the service staff who didn't have books, who were going to school with just hardships. Um, and you know, fifth grade couldn't read at a level. And just mm. down the street, you know, people had this immense access. And so that's where you keep the status and position. Um, and it yeah. was wild. There's no way that public life could catch up with that. Right. Um, so I was angry. <laughs> it's just really, mm. I didn't know how to challenge. I was like a happy, ignorant, angry person because I wasn't really sure what to do with all of this. Right. Um, and I um, was at this uh, independent school, people of color and in independent schools. It was like a network of um, black and Latino folks who worked at these places would get together and convege. Yes. And uh, it was fun. I was having a good time talking with this, this group of folks and like we were doing interesting things and learning different things and sharing ideas. Then I had to leave. I had a job and I'm like, yeah. And it turned out with the same classification, they were making anywhere from 10 to $15,000 more than I was. So I can understand why they didn't need a second job. I did. Right. Uh, so I went into the office just kind of, I think most people just assumed that I was a bumpkin. Like I didn't know much. Uh, yeah. I think I would give off that vibe. So I was like, hey, you know, to the HR person, I was like, I was just at this independent school and it looks like um, some of us might be making a little bit less. And um, I was like, can I just see like what the status is just for my classification? She's like, well, I can't give you that information. And I was like, oh, that's, you could probably just cross out the names. I just want to get a better understanding. And I don't think that she thought I would do much with it because I just seemed so daft. And she gave me the information. So <laughs> I, went about, I went about the business of just talking to everybody that was kind of, uh, kind of on an admin level and just going, did you know? Did you know? Because we had these pillars of excellence. And so this was one pillar that we were not achieving on. Right. Um, the long and the short was that I was able to organize and we were able to increase our salaries. I think my salary went up about seven or eight thousand dollars, which was a big, pretty big bump with having yeah. to do a little minimum organizing around it. Right. Um, and all the while, I was still volunteering at this place called Whitman Walker Clinic because of my my service. Yeah, I was telling them the story, like, "Hey, this happened and this happened." I was just giving them play by play, and then we won. I won, and then so um, one of the folks who was volunteering there too worked for SEIU. And she was like, you should come to 10 day. I mean, you should come at a tryout. It was a two day tryout in Boston. Like you'd be a great labor organizer. Again, nothing I had ever thought about. I come from a right to work state from North Carolina. Right. Never thought about labor unions. My mom thought like Jimmy Hoffa, you know, you'd be murdered. This like yeah. over the top. Sean, I'm going to pause you. I'm going to pause you. I want to rewind because I think there's some, some marvelous nuggets and patterns in your life that I, okay. I want to highlight. If, if we think about, 12-year-old Shonda working in grandma's business. Yeah. And finding out that she's making less than her peers that were doing the same work. And we think about flash forward Shonda at private school, finding out she's making less <laughs> and doing something about it. Yeah. That is temerity. And that is also bias to action. So when we think about grit, which is the passion, perseverance, endurance to actually address and overcome adversity. Yeah. You demonstrated grit 
at both very young ages and as you grew up in your early professional life. So the question is, where did you find the strength? Where did you find the wherewithal to do that? You know, I love that the show is called Grit because I want to add an S at the end because I think girls raised in the South would happen to be, especially especially black women raised in the South, happen to be some of the strongest people that I know. <laughs> I found it through my color heritage. I find it through my ancestors. And, and at the end of the day, you know, my, my great-grandfather organized the R.J. Reynolds. And when I think about all the things that he had to go through just to provide a life for his, his kids, and most of them were college educated. Can you imagine? Um, he was born in 1899 and education was the most important thing to him. By the time I was like three and four, he was asking me to spell alphabet and I just couldn't spell it for the life of me. That was the hardest word, word for me. Um, but he would always challenge. And then, um, you know, he, I think about him because we share the same birth date. He was born on wow. July 27, 1899. Yeah. And I was born in 1970 something. Mm. Uh, and so for me, it's just, um, it's innate. You know, like, what am I going to do? That's like, I got, I have to, I got to push it. And I think about my grandmother, who's his daughter, Artansia Jones. Um, you know, she had a similar work ethic. And, you know, my mom, on the other hand, did not. And her, my uh, dad, um, split when I was about five and it devastated her, I would say to this moment, you know, she just never fully recovered um, mm -hmm. from that. So as a long, as a young child, I uh, knew how to take care or make her feel comfort, you know, through um, humor and then just uh, pushing forward. So I would push her. So it comes, the idea of just sitting back and being passive, it's not never been real, a real option for me. Not an option. Not an option. <laughs> <laughs> so you're just fierce from fierce from birth. <laughs> well, you know, I'm not trying to hide myself up. I mean, I just like when you make it like this, I just think that there's a long time, you know, I, I talked to you up until that point, but there's a long time of like, you know, depression and struggles and anxiety um, because I do have such a high work ethic I gravitate to type A types of people and I can't relate to folks who don't have that strong work ethic. It doesn't mean that they're bad. I just don't understand it. And that sometimes can cause a lot of tension because I, um, I feel like time is time, like time is just not promised. You know, I've seen so many people work so hard. There was a young woman that I really just, um, just like gravitated to um, Kalila, she ran this group called Creed in New York, which was a nonprofit organization designed for pedagogy around black learning. And yes. she started this nonprofit, I guess it was in 2014, 2015. Um, we come across each other somewhere that time. And then she comes back to do a training with our staff, about a hundred people elite, primarily the Stanford, Princeton, like I know more than you kind of crowd, regardless of race. Um, she comes in there, she's wearing this black dress with a gold belt and these like red boots. And she's like, let me just talk to you about, you know, all of these complicated issues around education, bias, in the way that just was so accessible for everybody. It caused people to stop and reconsider like her, you know, perspective. When she came to that training, she brought her mom and she's from Brooklyn. Her mom's a little old in the back. And I was thinking to myself, I wonder if her mom's sick. That was in my mind. Like, you know, like, 
And that's so nice that she gets to see her daughter out here and shine. Khalil was planning a trip for all of us to go to Ghana the following year. And uh, it was just cool. Like she would send me stuff. She was like, I hope you're rocking your hair out, like going up to the sky, like God intended. She would send it all like, you know, she's fun. And uh, randomly, this is so random. What I'm about to tell you is random. I was, at a, I was asked to go to a fundraiser the last minute. It wasn't a big deal, but Lupe Fiasco was there. And he was like wearing sweatpants and he was carrying a duffel bag. And I was like, oh, that's Lupe Fiasco. I think I was the only one that realized it was him. So I was talking to Lupe Fiasco because I like kick push and superstar. Of course. And that dude's smart. He's so smart. And uh, I get a text that Kalila had died. She just had a heart attack at 36. At 36? Yeah, man. And uh, I still think about her because sometimes when you're working so hard and you feel like, time is, you know, like it's not, and you're working with that high work ethic, you don't take a minute to step back and say, whew, let me enjoy the journey that I've been on and, and reflect. And, you know, I thought Kalila's mom was going to pass away, but, I, you know, like it was nice to reflect that her mom got to see her in her shine. But uh, when you say being fierce and like driven, that comes at a cost too. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really cogent moment. Thank you, Shonda, for that, that insight. Sure. So I, I kind of interrupted you. You were taking us from your uh, the moment that you were um, organizing uh, the, the teachers and admin around the yeah. private school. Yeah. And you're going to take us from there. I, I'm sorry. I kinda, let's go back to that. that yeah, moment. no worries. I like jumping around. Um, it's good to make sure that, you know, um, keep me on my toes. So, okay, so, so, so from there, I started working for SEIU. I was organizing. I was on right. the international team. And it was really cool because I was learning about kind of the, the way that my mind always oriented to life through capitalism, like, you know, corporate consumptions. And labor union was a vehicle for, for me to get the training that I need. I went to the George Meany Center, which I don't think that's open anymore. But I learned a lot about how to inoculate, how, um, how to win and do assessments of people, you know, to make those snap judgment. Is this, is this person going to sign the car? Is this person a possible if they're coachable? Is this person worth my time? So I learned how to compartmentalize things really quickly. That worked for me because uh, I'm a judgy person. So that gave me a vehicle to make these snap judgments. It went well, but win or lose, I was on to the next town. And I didn't think that was right because when you're organizing, you know, if I'm coming to your house or your job and saying, hey, we got to do this. And then you're trusting in me. You're not trusting this, this you know, international that's back in D.C. You're like, OK, well, Shonda said to do it. And sometimes our, our larger organization would make the right calls, but sometimes they wouldn't. And they would put people at risk. And I won't get into the details of one that was really kind of problematic, but I was able to salvage it a little. Um, but we were able to move quickly across lines of difference. There was uh, a lot of there was. Afro-Latino women, Spanish-speaking, and then there was African-American, English-speaking, and then there was the teachers, which were mostly white women with a college degree. And they were fragmented across those things. I didn't come to the group talking about, let's build lines of, you know, let's be, you know, all together. That wasn't the purpose. It's just like, hey, man, you don't go to your cash your check, the money's out there, we can't win. So everybody had this common thing together and it moved. People were starting to build relationship and they got tanked. Uh, I got a I got offered a promotion and I was just like, this isn't 
feel like community to me because I was sad that some of those women were going to lose their jobs um, and I was going to the next town. So um, I ended up going back to Forsyth County, to North Carolina, taking a break. Um, and I didn't take a break for very long because I found out there was a group called the Industrial Areas Foundation organizing in the town. And I became an associate director, started running those campaigns there. Um, I'll fast forward you because I want to get into the weeds of things, but I would say the most important takeaway from that moment is learning how to build broad-based organizing across, across issues, yes. not, not a, around you know race. So they uh, started out, there was a couple of people who had moved down to Winston-Salem from the Northeast who wanted to call this thing, they wanted to call Crossing 52, which is the highway to separate concentrated black folks from more white folks, and mm -hmm. they couldn't get it going. And uh, they had reached out to IEF and Chris Balvin, who I worked with, to say, hey, we want to get this racial group going. And he did some assessments and he said, hey, turns out no one wants to talk about race, but they do want to talk about um, economics, education <laughs> and healthcare, and those common things. And so even now in this moment, especially where we're so kind of bifurcated, we are just at different polars of the, of the world. Right. Uh, I always come back to like, what is the self-interest of everyone? And teaching about public life right now in this moment is so important, but it's so hard because we've lost like what public life should look like. You know, even myself at times, I share too much. But what do we do in a space that's common that we should think about for the collective good of the Republic? Right. And then what is private life? Um, that's one of the things that I learned from that time, my time in North Carolina. And I went on to work on a number of in nonprofits and even for profits with Honest Tea Beverage Company. Mm -hmm. uh, but in this moment, as I lead Main Street Alliance, our work is singularly around common interests. We're not a progressive group. We're not a conservative group. We're a group that's fully focused on local economy yes. uh, through public life. Mm -hmm. What does that make you think of when I say public life? You know, I, 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 I'm processing a number of different, you know, both um, economic frameworks, socioeconomic frameworks. Uh, and, you know, my training is, is a, as a political scientist, Air Force Academy, uh, graduate school uh, at the Air Force Institute of Technology. So my lens is, is always macro. Sorry. Um, so I'm always thinking about like local public life or public life uh, sounds like a a micro scale uh, supply demand cycle between uh, small businesses, local businesses uh, and local communities. Um, that's what I think about. Uh, and maybe the social economic impact of those transactional kind of daily rhythms um, is, is what comes to mind for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think those are the right things. That's where I want you to go. Um, okay. That's my mind. That, that's, and I guess I think about, okay, so so I live in Prince George's County and um, it's- a Where I'm from, by the way. I, I, I grew up in District Heights. My parents still live in District Heights to this very day. Go ahead. Oh. <laughs> um, District Heights, is that where Genuine's from? Yes. Yes. Listen, Chuck Brown, the godfather of Go-Go, had uh, one of his homes five houses down the street from where my parents live right now. 
So there, and there's a few other hip hop, hip hop, go-go and rap stars that are literally from like my neighborhood and or surrounding neighborhoods. So yes. I think they might've been from their neighborhood. Now they moved out closer to my neighborhood. They're oh, okay. Croom and Upper Marlboro, Mitchellville. Yes. The Brandywine Fish, uh, this is just a uh, vignette. Uh, Fishbone, is it called Fish? Bonefish? Bonefish, yeah. Yeah, before the pandemic, you could find Taraji there. Uh, Genuine is often there. And wow. uh, and the woman that was on Oprah, she's like a, not a psychiatrist or psychologist, but she hugs people a lot. Okay. You know what I'm talking about? I know you're talking about. Okay. Yeah. Well, anyway, they all hang out around here. So um, that tracks, I'm just letting you know, they've, they've, they've moved on from District Heights. And so have you. Um, <laughs> 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 um, but bringing it back to what I was talking about public life, um, you know, we just had a big election here. I'll come back to Prince George's County in just a sec. We just had a big election. And I get a lot of folks congratulating me. I mean, Westmore's um, rise to governorship is Magnificent. I, I, so commend, I commend it, yes. But here's the thing. Um, the thing that I often think about in elections, not just with West, which you know is exciting and just we can't wait to, to see and support his leadership, but there's so many elections across the country that are not owned by local people. When you look at the dollars, you know how much it takes to run for public office, um, and if you have so much outside wealth shaping, you know, the direction and path forward for folks, it, it is harder to feel like you have local control and power on what should be um, sacred for your community. I'll go back to when my grandmother was running folks to office to make a connection. When she was supporting people in Winston-Salem for Side County, most of the money came from the county because there was so much concentrated wealth for yes. Black folks in particular. Yes. Um, and so there was this sense of agency, if you will, uh, on who's going to be in position, how they're going to get there. And that's important for democracy. That's important to feel like I can talk to my dry cleaner about an issue that's going to impact us all. Yes. Because of the way that we're set up now, my dry cleaner lives in Fairfax. My doctors you know, live in Baltimore. And so when I think about the issues that should, in fact, Prince George's County, it feels really transactional because we don't have you know, our, our we, DMV is a whole thing, but um, you know, you have this place where this, like, for me, is has such great potential. Um, and when I think about the education, out of twenty-four counties in Maryland, we're at the bottom, and then you have Baltimore City, which is not a county because you have Baltimore County that's better, but the Baltimore City School is a little further. Right. Right. And then you're like, okay, we're well, just trying to tell us a picture about education because both of those places are concentrated with black um, folks. And then when I think about, wait, that can't be right. There's so many millionaires and multimillionaires, you know, in this county, but most of them are taking their kids out to go to those independent schools like I talked to you about. And even those who can't quite afford it, would rather take out a second mortgage. And if you can't do that, then you'd rather go to a church school. And so you're leaving concentrations of poverty in the public schools. Um, and that's dangerous. Um, it goes back to why I thought the stuff of the school that I worked with was so problematic. Um, and that's risk there. There's risk when we are just so happy to get uh, a Marshalls, a Popeyes, and you know those franchises. That's great. But we should be happy to get, you know, Thomas Lee, uh, you know, coffee shop, you know, and, and just be excited to support those too. 
So when we continue to support multinational corporations, support places that doesn't feed back in, yes. it leaves place at risk. And so what I think public life is about is bringing people back to the common. And the common is our own community, our own local community. Yes. Um, and that I think that's that's the opportunity for my organization, like Main Street Alliance, and that's the opportunity for us if we want to come back to a common space and stop being so bifurcated. Does that make sense? That makes perfect sense. Absolutely. A piece of my, I, I'm a, a member of a, a, a study group that is oriented around entrepreneurship. Uh, and one of our missions is to make a 50 mile radius around us uh, the most prosperous, um, harmonious, most fulfilling place to live in America. So, you know, I completely both have internalized and want to talk to you maybe even after this podcast about more uh, public life and, and what it means to be uh, a local economy that, that, that is investing in itself. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I like that. Yeah. Uh, so when we think about the adversity, what is the adversity that you would say defined you to overcome? What did you have to absolutely address to overcome to be who you are? Well, that's a that's a um, a really great question because I think that 2022 has probably been one of my hardest years, and I think um, for a number of different reasons. One is that I've been a consultant and a coach for a long time, so I approach a lot of work and relationships as a coaching way. So even if you're coming to me and you're wounded, either through a mental de defect or you have this glitch that you can't things do things all the way through. I see the potential in you. And so I pour into you. Um, no, cause that's just my nature. Cause I'm just curious to see how I could help going back to how I help my mom. Right. That's kind of like how you learn in your early life kind of defines how you operate. And that could be a gift and a curse. And so the adversity that I think that I have had to, or have to continue to overcome, cause you know, that's, these things are cyclical. Um, it's discerning whether someone is a weed, it's going to choke out my garden if someone is, you know, a flower that's ready to bloom uh, or some fruit and vegetables that I could have in my gardens. So I've just been pouring the water all over the place and it depleted me. So that's that's one thing that I'm working on. Um, the other is just like life has shifted, you know, um, from the before times. And um, we haven't changed the rules of, uh, of engagement or agreements. And so I'm still working at that high output pace. Uh, and uh, I don't know if I need to do that anymore because we've all kind of shifted the way that we do work and engage in work. You know, like right now, you're in Raleigh, I'm here. And this is so common. And the challenge with like building relationships with people over video is that you don't really know their clicks or ticks, you know, you only get pieces of them. Um, and that's harder to discern um, whether someone is good or bad. And it just sounds silly, like, like I don't put people in good and bad characters because most people in try to be good, but you you can see in the office when you're when you're interacting with people more frequently, um, kind of their clicks. Are you following me on this? Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that that's um, hard for me because I want for so so many people to be great. And um, I've had such a, a full, diverse 
life with diverse yeah. people, big D. Yeah. Um, and then in the after, like we started with Black Life Matters and George Floyd and and um, and then we have Blue Life Matters and we have insurrections and most of the life starts to get separated by race. Um, and that's hard, you know, that's hard because um, for so many reasons. And, and then um, that keeps me up at night because my kids are growing up in a, in a life where I, the Ku Klux Klan marched in Forsyth County up until 1991. Um, but I don't think I had like a lot of like preconceived notions, just blanket across. Right. As, as it's making us, like media is making us feel that way now. So that's hard. I'm trying to figure out those things. Yes. Yes. What would you say has been your experience when you apply your rubric of weed versus flower to the relationships in your life? Do you find more flowers? Do you find more weeds? What's the, what's the distribution? Follow on question. What do you do about it? <laughs> yeah. This is great therapy questions. Um, and when I think about um, in my in my love life, in my private life, like certainly with my family, there's a lot of flowers there. There's a lot of like nurturing. And uh, I think in my my public life that's blurred into my private life. Um, uh, honestly, Thomas, I found a lot of weeds and that's what's been kind of hard for me to take stock because I was able to take step, take a step back and really assess someone differently. Right. And it just that was kind of painful to find out uh, that I had more weeds than I had flowers in my garden. Mm. So that's why this year was really difficult. Wow. Wow. Okay. And so follow on is what do you do about your weeds? I got I to gotta pull them out. Got to pull them out of the garden. We're <laughs> choking out the rest of my good stuff that I got going on. So, and I think that that part is, 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 is hard. I think I got over like, like, oh, snap kind of part. And now I'm going about the business of pulling them out and uh, starting fresh so that these, the other fruits in my garlands can go grow well. Excellent. Excellent. Shauna, this has been a marvelous conversation. Would you mind uh, looking to the camera and closing us out, please? Absolutely. I'm Shonda Causer, and this is Grit for the Day. Thank you for joining us on Grit for the Day podcast. I'm your host, Thomas Lee, TJ Johnson. It has been a delight to spend time with you today. Grit for the Day. Lived experience from influencers who overcome. With CEO and founder, Thomas Lee Johnson. <laughs>